Hi, I'm Paul Shari, Director of the Technology and National Security Program here at the Center for New American Security, and I'm here for another session of our podcast series on artificial intelligence. I'm joined today by Brendan McCord, Head of Machine Learning at the Defense Department's DIUX, and Gregory Allen, an adjunct fellow with the Technology Program here at CNAS, and author of last year's report on artificial intelligence and national security from Harvard's Belford Center. Uh, welcome, Greg and Brendan. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. So, uh, Brennan, I want to start, uh, ask, ask you first, do you tell us a little bit about DIUX as an organization, and then in particular what you're doing there on machine learning? Sure, happy to. So, to explain a little bit about how I, I got to DIUX, um, in late 2016, I heard Secretary Ash Carter uh, launch an effort to or, or announce the intention to launch efforts in artificial intelligence and in particularly computer vision. Um, I, at the time, was leading a team of machine learning research scientists and software engineers at a startup doing computer vision. And um, the head of DIUX then, Raj Shock, airlifted me to the West Coast, and I, and I started to get to work on, on computer vision problems for national defense. So I would say that DIUX is a place today where you have a combination of people with deep understanding about defense problems, as well as a real understanding of artificial intelligence and other technology areas who are meeting and focusing their talents on some urgent, audacious problems involving national defense. And we use some unique tools to, to uh, solve them very rapidly. So can you give me some examples of those? What are some of those audacious problems? And what are some of the unique tools that DIUX has at its disposal? Sure. So examples of um, big problems that we're working on are ones where you have some urgent need to address a human bottleneck um, or you need to think through redesigns of doctrine and force structure. And a good example of, of where that happens in DOD today is with um, Intel surveillance and reconnaissance missions. So these are missions where you have huge amounts of raw data that can get from overhead collectors to the warfighter within minutes, but you still need people to pour over these uh, you know, images to try to extract some meaning so the commanders on the ground can make decisions. And the number of people we need for this task is, is um, incredibly, incredibly large. One UAV operating over Mosul, for example, requires three teams of seven analysts to exploit um, on a single mission. So this is an area where we, we think that mature commercial technology and the ability for computers to see can be brought to bear to help um, really significantly reduce the human factor's burden of imagery analysis and increase actionable uh, intelligence and enhanced decision making. And how's that process going? Because the technology is there, the real world operational problem is there, it's very acute. We've been drowning in this data for a long time, wrestling with the PED problem. But somewhere between the technology and the problem is DOD's acquisition system. So how is that process of actually you know, making this happen coming along? Yeah, that's a great question. So one instrument that we use at DIUX is not the only way to solve, to work around this, this tricky problem, but is something called a commercial solutions opening. And a lot of what you find is that we have a lot of problems that can be solved with you know commercially mature technology. We have a really big um, 
market and Department of Defense for, for companies working with us, but companies often don't want to learn the um, FAR system, the acquisition system, set, set up separate accounting systems with different audit requirements and so forth, and right. wait 18 months. In Silicon Valley terms, 18 months is an entire technology cycle. And so we, we try to cut through that by enabling a method of contracting with really standard commercial terms that's fast, it's flexible, and it's very collaborative. Um, so our contracts happen in about 60 days. Um, that's that's one method. Um, there's certainly a few others that we have to tackle to get companies to want to work with, with us on solving these problems. And what's that reception been like in, from private sector companies that are not used to working with DoD? Have we been able to break down some of these barriers to innovation and been able to, to allow them to work with DoD in a more fluid and, and easier way? Yeah, the, I mean, the incentive has been really well, really positive. And uh, a lot of these companies have gone out and raised money from tier one venture firms. They've grown. They've started you know serious, meaningful defense businesses. Um, and that's been excellent. So reception in the Valley has been really good. And across the country, um, another thing to, to note, though, and you know, I've, my area of focus is artificial intelligence. There are other incentives that we found that we can utilize to tap into the commercial market. And a couple examples are these startups are facing a really challenging incumbent landscape. And so, in addition to providing them revenue, we can also help unlock some keys to scaling, help them de-risk uh, new products, help open new vertical markets for them, address cold start problems involving data, um, or provide really engaged, interested beta users early in the product development cycle. And that's coming from a startup background. I know all those things are top of mind for companies trying to build businesses in this area. That's great. That's uh, that's excellent. Uh, Greg, you've been looking at the U.S. national security sector and what they're doing or not doing in artificial intelligence for a while now, looking at uh, DoD and the intelligence community. The report you did for uh, Harvard's Belfer Center was for IARPA. Um, so what is your sense of you know where you see really good progress and where you'd like to see more efforts in the national security space in terms of integrating AI and machine learning? I think what Brendan said about DIUX using mature commercial technology is a really interesting point, and it's a theme uh, that comes up time and again uh, with artificial intelligence. If you look at prior military technology transitions, uh, whether that be aircraft or nuclear weapons, these were technologies where innovation was predominantly led by either the government itself through laboratories or through uh, private contractors who had very deep, intimate connections with the government. That's very much not the case uh, with artificial intelligence research. And the Department of Defense is finding itself in an unfamiliar position, having to leverage uh, the best of what's available in commercial industry and academia. Um, perhaps that's not a tough challenge, because you could say the technology is already out there. We just have to apply it to our, uh, our specific defense problems. But organizationally and politically, uh, these are very difficult issues. And that's one of the reasons why DIUX is, is so important, uh, because it helps technology startups or firms with specific AI expertise navigate those organizational and political barriers. So far, I would say there's plenty to be happy about with what's going on at DIUX, uh, at Incutel, uh, and other organizations in artificial intelligence. But I would contrast um, what is being done that is positive uh, against the scale of the overall challenge. 
Um, in my own report, uh, which again was for the uh, Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, which is a, a research organization within the U.S. intelligence community, we compared the impact of artificial intelligence over the next few decades to be every bit as revolutionary as the original invention of aircraft. So this is a massive disruption uh, coming towards the Department of Defense, and so the response must be equally massive. I think right now we're used to uh, looking at new technologies such as directed energy and believing they can be solved with $10 million here, $20 million here, uh, $20 million there. I don't believe that's the case for artificial intelligence. Uh, this is a revolution, uh, and it's time we start responding in kind. So what would a stronger response look like? What would you like to see DOD or the intelligence community do beyond what they're already doing now? Uh, fortunately, there is an organization called the Defense Innovation Advisory Board, uh, which is chaired by former Google CEO Eric Schmidt. This organization, uh, which has representatives from uh, very senior uh, technology co companies in the United States, as well as leading academic researches, researchers in areas like artificial intelligence, um, this organization put out a host of recommendations uh, for what needs to be done about artificial intelligence. Uh, I will focus on just one recommendation in particular that I'm, I'm quite interested in uh, recently, which is the idea of creating a dedicated organization uh, within the Department of Defense uh, doing research. Uh, Eric Schmidt at the CNAS conference uh, this past uh, November on artificial intelligence and global security said that what is needed is a new Sandia National Laboratories or a new Los Alamos National Laboratory. Um, these are organizations with billions of dollars uh, in annual funding. Uh, they are run by leading researchers in their fields and they are organized to produce an awful lot of amazing research. I don't think Sandia or Los Alamos is a perfect analogy uh, for what the Department of Defense should look for in an AI institute, but I do think that uh, that comparison captures the necessary scale. Uh, you know, we need new organizations. They're probably going to require billions of dollars in funding in order to be run correctly. And if I may say, you know, one of the most frustrating aspects of this is uh, the Defense Innovation Advisory Board's recommendations came out several years ago. Um, and the Department of Defense has yet to act on them by creating an AI institute. And in that time, uh, China has announced that it has created an AI institute. They were directly inspired uh, by the Innovation Advisory Board's recommendations, and they are funding it to the tune of billions of dollars per year. Um, so it's, it's very frustrating to see the Department of Defense get some good advice and then not take it and then watch China take that advice. So, so I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of opportunity for DOD to do more in AI, but one of the pushbacks I've heard in the idea of an AI center is this technology is, as you mentioned, already out there in the commercial space. Um, companies like Google and Facebook have way more money to throw at this problem than the Defense Department does, and creating another brick-and-mortar center somewhere that spends DOD money, maybe that's not the right solution. Why do you think that's important, and how would, you, how would that center interface with the private sector? Those are all great questions, and these are the ones that uh, you know, I am wrestling with and other folks uh, here at CNAS are trying to think through in advising the DOD in the best way to go around creating an AI institute. Uh, I want to first tackle your uh, initial point about how the private sector in the United States is a leader in artificial intelligence. Um, this is unambiguously true. Uh, many of the brightest minds in the entire world on artificial intelligence, uh, perhaps even a majority of them, if not a plurality, uh, are based in the United States and work for U.S. companies. Uh, but the United States should not feel comfortable resting on that head start. 
um, by any means. Uh, just this past year, uh, in the past few months, um, an analysis of, by Crunchbase found that uh, Chinese AI firms are now attracting more venture capital dollars uh, than U.S. AI firms. Uh, and if you look to past initiatives of the Chinese government, um, such as the Semiconductor Initiative, they committed $150 billion over five years to their Semiconductor Initiative. So when the Chinese government identifies a technology as of a strategic national interest, they are willing to spend jaw-dropping amounts of money uh, in commitment of that strategy. And they have declared artificial intelligence to be just that sort of technology. Now, onto the uh, second part of your question about what's the right way for this institute to be set up. Um, as I said before, I think uh, that Sandia and Los Alamos give a great sense of what the scale needs to be uh, when it comes to this institution. It does need to be a big effort that is well-funded and will ultimately have a large amount of staff. Um, but the structure, I think, will be very different from Sandia. Uh, Sandia is in the middle of the desert. Uh, it is very isolated from actual operational users of the technologies that they invent. And I think one of the lessons that we have learned um, from DIUX's efforts on artificial intelligence uh, and from other efforts going on in the intelligence community is that if you don't have early and repeated access to your end users, uh, who Brendan referred to as the beta testers, um, you're probably not going to be developing good stuff. The nature of AI technology and AI systems is such that while you can make great progress leveraging um, off-the-shelf commercial research, you do need to operationalize that with an existing defense user community. And so if development uh, stops once deployment starts, uh, the system is probably going to be pretty bad. And that's why I think we, we've learned that the traditional acquisition process is really just not a good fit for AI software and probably just even software generally. I, I want to just ex extend that because I think there are a couple of useful analogies and a couple of interesting insights on how we should engage with the private sector um, and with uh, academia and with private sector research labs as well. So one one thing that I'll mention that, that has been really effective, one way progress has been made is, is um, by posing significant use cases with some mission value and some real intrinsic you know, meaning for mankind, as opposed to um, saying we're going to tackle computer vision. Um, and so I think you know, we can't underestimate the role of researchers in this, those people who manage the transitions that are happening in the world with respect to AI. And in the past, we've heard from them that they've worked on big problems, whereas today, uh, these problems have gotten kind of subdivided into smaller and smaller efforts. And this contributes, in my belief, to this um, flow of talent out of academia and into the commercial sector. So I think if we pose and encourage research on these big problems with respect to AI, we'll get more stability in the system and we'll get um, people working on problems that have real meaning and can help save lives. The other thing I'll say with respect to engagement is that there is a, uh, a engine of progress in AI that the department is somewhat dis disconnected from. And that engine is a global network of developers and researchers who are working in this very fast-moving open source domain to collaboratively accelerate the field. They're improving the open source algorithms and frameworks and infrastructure and that's, that gets hardened by you know, being deployed out to billions of, of users in various um, products. 
And so private sector leaders have found a way to tap into that and to release uh, to you know open source their technology to the community and then extract value from that by establishing standards, attracting talent, capturing a lot of the profit. There's no reason why the department couldn't do similarly. And in fact, you know, in decades past, we helped seed and start this process. But today, those those technologies in artificial intelligence realm are evolving without our input on standards um, and on approaches. Why do you think that is? Is there is there hesitancy on the part of people in DoD to use open source software? Is that part of the issue? Is it just that we're not? tied into that community, we have the same connections. Where's the the break in the linkage right now? That's a great question. I, I think we um, it's non-intuitive perhaps, like to see the underlying like the, the underlying physics of that system are sort of unintuitive. Um, like the, the thought that you should contribute to to this global thing, like even contribute state of the art technology is uh, is something that private sector leaders have discovered, but I think a lot to a lot of government folks that sounds like giving away your proprietary work. So in fact, Absolutely. when it avoids rendering your work obsolete, it, it exactly avoids that. It feels like uh, that is what it's doing. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the first time that we've run across this issue with open source software in our research here at CNAS, and I'll put in a plug for a paper um, on open source software for the Defense Department by my former colleagues, uh, Ben Fitzgerald, and, um, uh, and uh, who's now at DOD, on this, this very topic. I want to, um, you know, ask you both. We've been talking a little bit about some of the advantages of AI, and we're all kind of singing in the same choir here on that respect. But um, you're both aware about some of the limitations in AI systems today, some of their vulnerabilities to things like spoofing attacks, or some of the just the brutalness of current narrow AI systems. And I'd be interested in each of your thoughts when we begin to use this technology in national security applications, where they may have very high consequence. Um, kind of effects. How should we think about some of these limitations and vulnerabilities? Well, I think a lot of the vulnerabilities come from the unfamiliarity and the newness of the technology. Uh, an analogy I like to give is think about the early days of electricity. Um, today, we live with electricity and it's very safe and we do not think of it as a significant fire risk. Uh, it's something that you know we allow uh, children to plug in a light bulb. Um, but in the early days of electricity, uh, it was a very scary and new technology that caused a ton of fires uh, and a ton of electri electrocution deaths. Uh, and it wasn't until we got the operational safety experience uh, of learning, you know, electricity's fire risk is different from a candle or a lamp's fire risk. Ultimately, electricity can become much safer, but it's only much safer if you invest in the regulations and the standards to figure out how to use it more safely. I think the same is true of artificial intelligence. The potential is there uh, for this to be a very safe and effective technology, uh, but we won't learn how to do that unless we create dedicated safety organizations examining uh, the ways that this could go wrong. And the, the, I think what's interesting is that the failure modes, uh, the ways that this could go wrong in AI software, are very unfamiliar and strange uh, compared to more traditional programming architectures. We have learned a lot of how to use traditional software 
um, and AI software using machine learning uh, breaks in different ways. And we need to gain a lot of operational experience and organizational experience in how to do that safely and effectively. But it sounds like you're saying it's more than just sort of, hey, these are some some bumps along the way. We're going to have to learn this and we'll have mistakes. You'd like to see some different organizational solutions in terms of you mentioned some some people that have a priority to focus on safety. Yeah, definitely, and I think that would be a great uh, that would be a great responsibility for an AI institute uh, is thinking through how do we make these things safe. If you look at the early days of nuclear weapons, uh, there's a book by Eric Schlosser called Command and Control, um, which details all the various accidents uh, and almosts of the nuclear era. And it's, it's rather frightening. And I think one of the, the big lessons learned from that era is that uh, safety standards were not given serious thought until there were dedicated organizations focusing on safety uh, and until those organizations were given bureaucratic and political power uh, to match the nature of the, of the challenge. I think the, the same needs to be true of AI. And I think also that this is a, this is a good way to attract talent. If you think about uh, the national security community in the wake of the uh, Edward Snowden revelations and also in the wake of uh, Trump's election, I think there are plenty of folks in the technology community who have been a little bit wary about working with the US national security community. I think a sincere and focused effort on making these technologies safe and making sure that they are used in a way that is consistent with American ethics, values, and laws um, is going to be a really important recruiting tool. Uh, so that people know that they can come and work with the U.S. national security community and not feel that they have somehow compromised their ethics. I think AI safety is a big part of that. I completely agree with that point about recruiting. I think it's a huge area of common cause, and we have to find those areas with the commercial sector. Um, Defense Science Board talks about how design for commercial systems rarely considers the problem, the possibility of high re uh, regret outcomes, but. And I think they would, they would agree with this. Commercial solutions are moving away from controlled environments into more and more mission-critical or privacy-sensitive uh, environments and so or applications. And so I think there's an opportunity to launch a, an effort um, that's technically focused around, meaning delivering some practical solutions to this problem of safety environments. Um, and I would I would use another analogy here. You brought up nuclear weapons. I'm a submariner uh, before shifting into sort of artificial intelligence field, spent time on fast attack subs. And so I spent my time in the military under um, naval reactors. And naval reactors was set up to safely and productively harness nuclear power um, and to put it on submarines and conduct missions with it worldwide and leads the world in a lot of respects in the safety measures that it applies. And this required um, great leadership and it required you know, access to technical talent to drive and maintain those standards, hooks into shipbuilding and manufacturing, all sorts of, all the kinds of things that you would need to do, do something similarly in artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's a good. Um, that's a really good example. The Navy Subsafe program is um, is really remarkable in terms of its safety record. A comparison book, an Eric Schlosser book on uh, the Navy Subsafe program, would be exceptionally boring, uh, which is a good thing um, <laughs> because you don't see those kinds of accidents and near miss accidents. Um, but but those are really robust organizational solutions, and they're hard to replicate um, in other areas. And I don't know that we have experience for that for automated systems that are operating on their own, sort of outside human control, that's a, that's a whole other kind of ball of wax. 
Um, you know, when we're talking about AI safety, there was also a really interesting report, um, Greg, that, that you and I both contributed on from 26 authors from 14 institutions on malicious uses of artificial intelligence um, that recently came out that focused on some things that might, people might do that would be deliberately harmful. Um, interested in your thoughts, Greg, on some of the key takeaways or main ideas from that report that, that you found particularly relevant. Yeah, I think it's it's great that this report is out, and I was really uh, pleased that I got to be a part of the process of, of making it. Um, the organizations involved, I think, had a very basic insight, which is that artificial intelligence is a dual-use technology. Um, it is, like electricity, relevant to a ton of different areas uh, and useful for a ton of different areas. So in the case of artificial intelligence, we must therefore realize uh, that it's going to be useful to potential adversaries as well, and people who are not merely looking to do harm, uh, but are looking to do an awful lot of harm. And it's worth thinking through these issues uh, in the early stages of the technology. I think in the early days of the internet, um, there were utopians and dystopians both. Uh, the utopians said that it's going to make the world's knowledge available to anyone uh, and lead to an amazing revolution. And there were others who said this is going to introduce all kinds of security vulnerabilities into critical systems uh, and perhaps lead to a proliferation of fake news. Well, both the utopians and the dystopians were correct. And it would have been nice if um, some of the people who were warning in the early days of the internet about the security vulnerabilities uh, had been listened to more closely. I often hear uh, people who say, if we could design the internet today, there's so much we would have done differently uh, building insecurity from the outset. I think what the authors of this report are, are focused on is, can we do that for artificial intelligence? Can we avoid, um, can we avoid making stupid mistakes that we'll regret later uh, by thinking about safety, by thinking about malicious use of AI in the early stages of the technology's history? Excellent. Um, I want to wrap up, Brendan, by asking you, what do you see coming down the pike in terms of uh, defense applications of AI that most excite you, that you're most um, really enthusiastic about seeing these be able to be implemented into DoD and solve some, some operational problems? Sure. So I think the um, there's a lot of work to be done to make to realize fully realize this vision around in, um, using computer vision, and that's one. Um, and by that, by that I mean, you know, doctrinal change, force structure, really, you know, maximally utilizing those human analysts and um, deploying the technology to its fullest. I think a second uh, practical application is to be able to generate uh, and think about more, um, uh, let's say, quantitatively arrived at or. Um, clear strategy options using artificial intelligence. We've seen that there, um, in, in every sort of game, you've had novel strategies emerge from artificial intelligences that have fundamentally changed the way that the games are played. And I think that we there's an opportunity to do that in a couple of um, domains in the military. Um, thirdly, I would say that there are billions of dollars in cost savings that could come from um, the thoughtful application of artificial intelligence. And one example is, you know, changing our paradigm of, of maintenance, for example. Um, we, we currently maintain it using a time-based approach, and we expend a great amount of labor uh, hours and operating costs maintaining components to a, a lower state of readiness than we could if we had a, an 
a more um, adaptive predictive maintenance paradigm. Hmm. This has tremendous importance for existing uh, systems, for their operating costs, and for um, readiness across the military. So I, I would say that you know AI, unlike other technologies, has huge potential to benefit um, force structure, superhuman decision-making, cost savings, efficiency, and uh, improvements in lethality. Well, good. Well, we look forward to um, to seeing some of those be implemented in the years to come and uh, all the great work that folks at DIUX and, and elsewhere in DOD are doing. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks very much. Thank you.